you've got your Bibles with you, we are, um, as Alex read for us, Luke 7, it's on page 1036, there's Bibles around the place, so do grab a Bible and have that open. And um, this is a story that I love uh, very, very much, it's very close to me, and the great privilege of being vicar is that you sometimes get to choose the bits you preach on, and this is one of those. And um, it's incredibly, in its context, an incredibly radical, scandalous even story. Um, it's electric, this passage. And it's electric because it's about our bodies and it's about sex. And I used to have a great teacher who used to teach on this passage. And she said, very wise woman, she'd uh, preach through this passage. And she had a line in the middle of that talk where she said about this passage, the smell of sex was everywhere. Great line. The smell of sex was everywhere. Let's pray and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, as we begin this 40 weeks journey together and as we explore our center, we pray that you would be with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come closer to us than we are to ourselves. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as I said, we got started on this 40 weeks journey together last week, and uh, we've been asking this question that we think is perhaps the most important question anyone can ask in their lives. What's at the centre of my life? And I said that in these 40 weeks, we were invited as a church to increasingly become dependent on God, expectant for God, and changed by God. And as I said, that's what I'm going to be preaching on over the next few weeks. And today, we're going to be thinking about what does it mean to be a people, individuals, a church, and in our circles, dependent upon God. I wonder what that word dependency or dependent throws up for you. Dependence really, I guess, is about reliance, isn't it? About being reliant upon something or someone. And the topic of today is to think about how do we become increasingly reliant upon God? And in this passage, I think what we see here is a woman, someone who is dependent upon Jesus. That's what she models to us, I think. What does it look like to be dependent on God? And so I want to say really just three things. Look at these three questions. What does dependence look like? Secondly, why is it hard? And third, how do we become dependent? So those three things. What does dependence look like? Why is it hard? And how do we become dependent? Just before I dive into those three questions, though, I just wanted to say one more thing. This woman is perhaps one of my favorite characters in the whole of scripture. And uh, I want to be more like her. But you'll notice in this passage that she doesn't have a name. She's called the woman, this woman. Uh, this is the cultural conditioning under which the text is written. And that doesn't excuse it, but it does perhaps explain it. She should have a name. She deserves a name. She warrants a name. By the end of this passage, she is very, very loved. And when we come to glory, we will meet this woman and we will speak to her as a person with a name. So as we read this passage and I speak about the woman, I just want to caveat it. Uh, with those words. Let's jump into the scene, shall we, and explore this question. How does this woman show us what it is to be dependent upon God? We start in verse 36. Jesus is invited around to a Pharisee's home, clearly a wealthy enough individual to warrant being a host. And Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, is receiving his hospitality. This is how Luke sets the scene. And we know that Luke, who wrote this gospel, likes to do this. Luke is a good storyteller. He establishes the categories, guest, host, Pharisee, rabbi, table fellowship, honor, shame. 
And then again and again in his gospel, what he does is he flips these categories on his head. He shows how Jesus flips these categories. So the scene is set. Where is the upset going to come from? And it comes, note, not from Jesus. So far, Jesus has kept a convention, but from this woman. Here then is the introduction of threat in the story. A set of very established categories and into this mix is added another, verse 37. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life. Now given the way in the scriptures in the gospel those terms are used, there's little doubt as to what this refers. Prostitute, some have, harlot, others translate it. The Greek form actually can be read with a certain harshness. A woman in the city who was a sinner. Or better, a sinful woman of the city. She is, in this town, in this city at least, known as the sinner. A fact we see because everyone around the table immediately recognises her. Luke wants us to see then, in this place, in this town, she plays the role of the sinner. That's her category. And in front of them all, she performs this most outrageous of acts. It isn't so outrageous to us, perhaps, But like I said, in the context, it's scandalous. Scandalous because she is even here at this gathering at all. Scandalous because she is touching the guest. Scandalous because she is down now, lying at his level. Scandalous because she is visibly weeping in public. Scandalous because her tears, her fluid, her water is touching his flesh. Scandalous because she is now, yes, letting down her hair, something a woman would never do in this context. Scandalous because she's letting that same hair touch him. Scandalous because she's now kissing his feet, now pouring perfume. What say you now, asked Luke, of your categories? The perfume and the explicit show of emotion, the touching, the caressing, the untying, unfurling, undressing of her hair, and her past and how they've all imagined her, and let's be clear, they have all imagined her, and the kissing and the desire, all of it is, well, all of it is what it seems. The smell of sex is everywhere. We see then utter devotion. Sex in the fullest sense, eros, a burning desire for, a heart-led movement towards the other that wants the other, that wants to be close, to show love and affection. This is why we lift our hands in worship, the same action, a sign of devotion. This is the love of Jesus that you and I are invited into. So devotion, but also dependence. Why dependence? Why use that word to describe what's going on here? Well, she's dependent in this sense. If Jesus does not come through for her, she is utterly and finally ruined. I'll say that again. If Jesus does not come through for her, she is utterly and finally ruined. See, we don't know what her life has really been like up to this point, how public have been her errors caused by the trauma of her life. We don't know what people have seen or what they've not seen, glimpsed or what they've heard. But now there is certainly no doubt no doubt whatsoever. Almost every social cultural convention around sexual expression and male and female bodies you could imagine in this context, she has publicly violated. She has thus, if you like, sort of crossed the point of no return. There is no going back. 
And if this doesn't work, if he does not reciprocate my love, then really it is done. No more hiding, no more secrecy. She risks being taken outside and at very least thrown beyond the village. At worst, something else. We might then say this. She has, for whatever reason, gone all in. Placed all her chips on Jesus. Risked it all. She performs this potentially life-ending act of devotion. She looks up into Jesus' eyes and she is, at that point, utterly and entirely at his mercy. That's dependence. That's what we're invited into as individuals, as a church, in our circles. That level of dependence, that level of risk. To be a church where if God isn't who we've said he is, then we're in trouble. This is what we're exploring together over these 40 weeks. And what we glean from this passage is that there are some sort of indicators of that type of, in, of, that type of dependence. One indicator would be a desire to give our worship and our praise. This is what dependence looks like in this passage. Of all the things that we could be doing to pray, to worship, to adore Jesus, a dependent person worships and a dependent church is a church that wastes time in adoration of Jesus that gives our most valuable possession, in other words, our time, daily, weekly, monthly, annually, gives designated times to worship and prayer, corporately and individually, that gets up early to pray. We've designated two opportunities to do that, as I spoke about earlier, to come to morning prayer in the morning, that might be something you do. You might pray at home as well. Or to come to first, and maybe and both, to come to first Monday on a Monday afternoon. Here's another one, though. As well as giving our praise and our worship and our prayer, here's another one. To give abundantly of our finances, an alabaster jar of perfume this woman brings. Who knows how much this cost, how long she had saved for this. A dependent person gives sacrificially and abundantly. A dependent church is a church that gives beyond its means. It's why we take giving very seriously, and we're going to be doing that together in a moment. Not because the church is a charity, and it needs our money, but because giving is part of our devotion, part of our worship. We know we are dependent on God when we stop depending on total financial security and we give in a costly, sacrificial way. So that's what devotion begins to look like in this passage for us. But second, I said this second question, why is, devotion, uh, why is dependence sorry, hard? Why is dependence hard? Well, because, let's be honest, there's just so many other things that we could be dependent upon, right? We talk uh, a lot in our context about the decline of the church in the Western world. Uh, church numbers going down, church influence going down. And there's lots of reasons as to why that might be the case. But clearly, uh, it's an incredibly complex social phenomenon. But clearly, one of the, com- the central reasons must be that basically... We, in what we call the developed first world, the context we live in, in the Western world, North America, UK, Europe, we don't really need God day to day. We don't need God day to day. All of those basic needs, we've kind of got nailed, haven't we? Food, warmth, water, medical treatment. Our lives then are not so much, as many people in the world are today, as Emma prayed, not so much on the edge materially. We don't pray 
often because basically we don't really need to. We say, don't we, give us today our daily bread, but we don't often really mean that. Tesco's, my pay packet, does a much better job than God does at that one. I have a good friend who's a really good mentor and a coach to people, helping them in their lives. And he uses this phrase, which I like, and it stayed with me. He often says, well, I've tried to help this person, he says, but you know, they've just not come to the end of their rope yet. He says, they've not come to the end of their rope yet. And his point is this. They come to me, he says, because they, need, they know that something in their lives is, is sort of wrong, not quite aligned. Something needs fixing. It could be better whether it's a marriage or relationship or something in their social group or whatever. And he says, no matter how much guidance or help I try to give them, the fact is they basically can't really change and they won't really change because, he says, they've not yet got to the point where they need help. They want help, but they don't need it. You see that? This woman has come to the end of her rope. She's reached the point, maybe she's reached it some time ago, where she has no standing on her own, no social standing, no financial means, even her own body has been taken by others. And so this is why she is the unique character in the room. The only one really in this whole room, in this whole scene, who can offer Jesus this level of devotion, because everyone else in the room presumably has it together in some way. They might like Jesus, they might be interested in him, but they don't need him. To them, he can be a friend or even, verse 40, a teacher. But to her, he's so much more. A saviour, a friend, her beloved. She needs him. She needs him and so she utterly wants him. When I lived in Nottingham, I got to go to this place called Betel. Betel. I don't know if anybody's been to Betel. There's a few expressions of Betel around the country. And Betel is a charity that works with those in recovery from drug addiction, uh, opiates, cocaine, meth, etc. And what they do is they take people in. Uh, they have, these individuals have to volunteer to come to this program. And they take them through a sort of cold turkey process. So they literally uh, leave them off the drugs. And it's awful. It's an awful, awful process to get through uh, this time. And this charity, this Patel, is run by Jesus followers, by Christians. And so as well as the recovery house, they have a church that runs alongside it. And we got to go to this church. They meet on a Friday night. And honestly, this church is probably the closest thing to heaven I've ever seen. Uh, You have a whole range of people on the recovery journey in this church. Some have been sober for decades. Others were brought in last week. And they're sitting in the corner, shaking and shivering as the drugs literally exit their body. But what was amazing about this church was the worship. The worship. It's the closest thing I've ever seen with my own eyes to this woman's worship and this woman's devotion. They worship in Betel like they've really been forgiven. As Jesus says, this woman worships. Because, and here's the point, when they sing lines like, I was dead and you saved me, or once I was lost and now I'm found, they really mean it. These aren't just words to them. Grace really was amazing, grace. Really was a sweet sound. No power of hell, they sung. No scheme of man. This is it. 
This is something the addict knows, that this woman knows, that the person at the very end of their rope knows, and it's something that's very hard for most of us to know in our culture, because basically we've been conditioned against it. What they know is this, I owe everything to God. It will be the poor, says Jesus, who will inherit the kingdom. Why is dependence hard? Because there's so many other things that we can rely upon. And finally, how do we become dependent? It tells us lots of things about dependence, this passage. How do you get that sort of dependence? Well, some of you might be convicted this morning. You might be recognizing already some of the dependencies that you need to wean yourself off from, whether that's financial dependence, whether it's a substance, whether it's a relationship, whatever it might be. And if you want to talk about any of those things, do come and talk to me. I'd love to have that conversation with you. Maybe this 40 weeks for you is a journey of working out how do I stop being dependent on this thing and increasingly become dependent on God. Maybe that's why Christians fast sometimes, to remind themselves of their dependence on God. I know there also will be some people in this congregation this morning who won't be far from this level of dependency. Some of us know exactly what it is I'm talking about when I talk about needing God. Some of you really have been to that dark place where you've needed God. Some of us, I want to say this as well, maybe here who are slightly longer in the tooth than others of us. Your body, perhaps, as you get older, is letting you down. Maybe your mind even, too. And what this season means for you is a new level of dependence, dependence on others and therefore dependence on God. And we know that God does not cause our suffering, but we also know that God can use our suffering and use seasons that we're in. And maybe this chapter of your life, wherever you are, is an invitation into greater dependence on God. And maybe you'll find life there. Maybe some of us find it very, very hard to be dependent because over the years, for good reasons, we've built up thick skin. The things we've seen, the things we've known. Maybe there's a journey of these 40 weeks for you to a new vulnerability. So I don't know what this 40 weeks is going to look like for you as you increasingly become dependent on God. But what this passage does show us, and I'm going to land here, is that if we ever doubted it, if we ever doubted it, Jesus is worthy of our dependence on him. Why depend on God? Because of the love we see expressed in Jesus in this passage and in other passages, particularly in the Gospels. This woman has seen in Jesus somebody worthy of her dependence. Of all the other men she's known in her life, this man seems somebody she can trust. She looks up into his eyes And the question we're all asking is, how will he respond? How will Jesus respond? What love, what confidence in his own identity, in his own body even? What social power, what lack of fear, what justice? She looks up, he looks her in the eye and he smiles. She pours out her eros, her love, and he receives it wholly. For the first time, perhaps ever, her vulnerability is not abused, but received and held. See this, verse 48. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus said to her, everyone else in the room speaks about her. Jesus is the only one in the whole piece who speaks to her. He has enough love for you, whatever stage of life you're at, to be utterly dependent 
upon him. Music